Hello, and welcome to Are You Going to Eat Your Fat? This podcast is a resource dedicated to those struggling with eating disorders. If you are struggling with an eating disorder or know someone who is, maybe a brother, sister, daughter, wife, we want to be here to provide resources and offer hope. I am Dina Lewis, and I'm here with my husband, co-host, Brian Lewis. We are not doctors, but we do come with more than 20 years history in dealing with eating disorders. Whether you found us on purpose or by mistake, whatever the case, we hope by the end of this episode, you have learned something, or at least if you are struggling, you do not feel alone. Hi, and welcome back. I'm Dina. And I'm Brian. In our first podcast, we shared with you my first treatment stay, and we wanted to continue with that onto my second and final stay. So we wanted to give you a little bit more information. If you missed the first podcast, you can go back and listen to it. You don't need to listen to that to know what's going on in the second one. You're not going to be horribly lost. So if you want to catch yourself up, you can. If not, that's fine. We're just going to continue the story. Okay, so a little recap. We were I was at Raider Institute in North Hollywood, California. I was there for three months. I never really reached my goal weight. I think I got up to about 90 pounds. I left the facility and I was discharged, but at the same time, I was going to go back for outpatient care and deal with the nutritionist on a weekly basis. And I did, but just getting back home and not having a plan set as to what I was going to do on my daily life, how do I make those meals and take care of myself, I fell back into the same habit kind of routine that I had done prior to going into treatment. Just as an aside, as a family member, when you finally get somebody to that treatment facility, it's not an easy thing to do. Treatment is scary. Treatment sucks. And the treatment facility we found was very much like a hospital. And it was in a hospital, patients stayed in patient rooms, and then they would gather at the cafeteria to gather their lunch tray and to have their meals. And part of what you do as a family member is like, okay, you know, I talked about that trust. They know what they're going to do and they know what they're doing. However, you know, you can hear in this story the lack of understanding of eating disorders for this treatment facility from anywhere from, you know, the patients could easily manipulate their meals. They could easily not finish their meals. They could easily walk away from treatment if they wanted to. Yes, we had group therapy, but, and Dina can correct me if I'm wrong, and I don't know because I, I wasn't the patient, I was the family member, but I don't know, maybe there was 12-step meetings. But when that goal was set of, okay, we're going to hit this weight, and then she can be discharged, and we're thinking, great, oh, yeah, that's a good goal. But it, looking back on it today, that goal was a silly goal to attain because it doesn't include everything that the patient would need to resume a life that had support. It was kind of like, okay, you've done your treatment now, you're released to the wild. <laughs> Fly, be free, butterfly. And, and that's just so unrealistic in treating addiction and treating you know, eating disorders. So yes, there was an aftercare plan, but outside of, of meeting with a nutritionist, it wasn't much. I knew I wasn't doing well. 
it wasn't a big secret. I knew what I was doing and I was playing around in there, but I really, I was also a newlywed. I wanted to go back home to my husband. I didn't want to stay in this place. And big shock, but we were running out of money. By that three months, we had used everything that we had had saved. Well, we had a nest egg and that had consumed the nest egg. Consumed it. And so it was time to go. I wasn't trying to fool anybody. I mean, I guess I kind of kind of was trying to fool the nutritionist on the outpatient place, but I just couldn't believe that this was going to start all over again, that we just put a Band-Aid on it, that we really hadn't gotten down deep, that nobody had showed me what I needed to do on a day-to-day basis. Everything was brought to me, What everything, all the food was brought to me, what I was supposed to eat. And I would, had no hands-on experience in my own recovery. And that, to me, was it actually a scarier place to be, to know that we had, you know, put forth all of the all of these resources to get somebody healthy. They come out, they look healthy, um, a lot healthier than when they went in. And shortly after, you know, three three months after being discharged they're almost right back into the same place. And it's like, you know what's happening. As a family member, as a husband, I knew exactly what was happening. But it was almost harder to bring yourself to the reality of what was happening because you had made this investment of, I can't believe it's ha- it's happening. What, what I kept telling myself is, I can't believe it's happening again, when in reality, I can't believe it's still going on. So once I came home, I started getting the pressure from my family, and I, I felt the guilt, but at the same time, I loved the disease more than I loved anything else, and that was the most important thing to me. But at first, I found myself getting back up on that scale three or four times a day, weighing myself, isolating myself more and more from family, from friends finding excuses as to why not to go out and meet them for obviously dinner or get together because everything, when we got together as a family, it was all about Dina. It was all about what are we going to do about Dina? What are we going to do about this? I mean, where are we going to send her? What can we do? And it would make me so angry. And I knew they were trying to help. If I look back retro right now, I know everybody was concerned and wanted to help. But at the time, it felt like I was like, I was out of the equation and everybody was talking about me, but I wasn't even there. And everybody was having discussions about what are we going to do about Dina rather than going to Dina. But I know also at that time it was really hard to come directly to me and talk to me on a one-on-one basis or in a group situation because I was so manipulative and um, I would kind of fight back and I would argue and that was really coming from because I wasn't taking care of myself and feeding myself. So when people approached me, I was, how would you say it? Um, rude. <laughs> yeah. Mean. You were definitely, I think, in your disease. And the family had, from the time I think you were discharged, there's a little bit of you know, we should, let's just see if she can handle going out to dinner. So let's invite her out to dinner. And after a while of, you start making excuses of why you can't. And 
not doing things and disengaging because when we would come, when the family would come to Dina and I would come to Dina and we'd, we'd say things like, you know, I think, I think you need help. It would be an overwhelming, it would get emotional. It would get uncomfortable. You know, it's not like you sit down with an addict and go, I think you need help. And they go, yeah, I think you're right. And they get up and go get help. I mean, that just doesn't happen. And that's not the reality of it. That's what you'd like to happen. But in reality, what happens is it's kind of over time where the addict sees what they're doing and sees the effect they're having on their own health and the effect that they're having on their family. And they get sick and tired of being sick and tired. That's when they kind of reach out for help. So it's not one conversation. It's many conversations over a period of time that really start making impact. I guess, kind of zoom ahead a little bit. Right before I entered treatment for the second time, I had been seeing, and I think I talked about it a little bit in the first podcast, I had been seeing a lady that was also a recovering anorexic at the local community college. And I was going and meeting with her on a weekly basis. I really liked her. I felt like she understood where I was coming from. I didn't feel attacked. But I also was, nothing was really changing by me going to see her. I would want to change, but the fear is what always held me back. I wanted to get better, but I didn't know what looking better sounded like or felt like. And my mom used to say to me, like, don't you want to feel great again? Don't you remember? And I would say to her, like, I don't remember what it felt like to feel good anymore. It'd been this way for so long. So anyway, I, so I started seeing my therapist at the time and, you know, it really got to the point where she was like, Dina, you're going to have to get help. You're really going to have to get help. And she started looking for me. No one would take me because of the high risk, my low weight. She ended up finally finding a place for me. I hope I can say the name of this place. <laughs> it was in Carlsbad, San Diego. It was called Monacatini. Monacatini literally saved my life. I'm not going to say that I'm not because I participated and I did the work, but if it wasn't for them, I wouldn't be here today. When I went to Monacatini, they had restrictions on me that I could only go upstairs one time, and that was to bed, and then coming back down in the morning, and the rest of the time I had to sit. I was supposed to initially be at this treatment center for a year, and I ended up being there for seven months. So I'm going to say probably about five months of that stay, I was not doing anything physically active. So I kind of felt like a puppy dog, like I just sat there and, but it was for until I got to kind of maintaining a weight of some type that was healthy, that I could get up and interact and be a part of the treatment. I was in all the meetings, the 12-step meetings and all that kind of stuff, but I didn't get to participate if we went outside and went ice skating or to the mall or any other activities. And that was part of I felt terrible. I mean, I, I wanted to participate, but that was kind of, I did this and this is another consequence for what I had done to my body over these years. And, you know, I even had to wake up at like 5 a.m. and go to the gym with the rest of the people because they had gotten to a point where they could start working out. And I would just sit there and watch them work out. And what made this place so wonderful is that it had a schedule for you. A lot of people came into this treatment center where I was at and it was just all for women. And they'd say, oh, you know, I don't eat meat and I don't eat chicken and I only eat fish. 
Well, that changed real fast. Everybody had to eat everything. That first night I got there, they had a full-on dinner and stuff like that, and it scared me to death because my stomach was the size of like a pea, and I was supposed to start eating. But I did it, not wanting to do it, but I didn't have much of a choice. And again, we talked about we had already gone through all the money that we had had, so now this time, this place was even more expensive. And again, we're newlyweds. We don't have much money saved up. And I have to look to my brothers and I have to look to my parents who are both retired. They gave their paychecks to my husband to pay for my treatment stay, which I'm overly grateful for. From that period of time where you were discharged from Raider to the time you started in Montecatini, that was probably some of the darkest periods of our life. And I worked with her brothers, and so every day there wasn't anybody who would meet Dina or see Dina that couldn't tell that something was wrong with her physically. And everybody had concern, and everybody felt like they had to voice that concern. And a lot of it felt like it came at me. And outside of telling everybody, she's going to her therapist She's got a nutritionist, and she goes to those meetings. I really didn't know what else to tell them because I didn't really even even have a good understanding of what was going on. Um, certainly, medically, I didn't understand what an eating disorder was, who does. And I kind of thought, well, with the tools that she got at Raider, and if she keeps going to this therapist, you know, something's going to happen on the road to wellness and it just kept getting worse and kept getting worse and then you're compounding that with i thought we had this under control we had the treatment facility we did that and and it just i can't believe we're at in exactly the same place we were before i was going to get my teaching credential i was doing coursework and i just you know it just felt like every day was such a challenge uh just to get through the day without anybody asking me, how's Dina doing? Because when you're that caregiver, nobody asks how you're doing. And not that I would have known. I would have, uh, you know, hanging in there, you know, doing, you know, saying whatever you, you can to uh, let them know that you're all right, but you're not all right. Because you're, I mean, you're both living with it, but it's this never-ending cycle. It's just this big, dark weight that's on you 24-7. I remember she said, well, I found, you know, my therapist and I discussed going to this place for an eating disorder, and I'm like, great. She said, it's in Carlsbad. Great. You know, and I need to be there by Friday. Oh, great. So she loaded up her clothes and stuff and put them in a bag and get in the car and start driving down there. And it's three and a half, four hour car ride down there from where we lived. And then we get down there and they do the intake and it's, it's dark by this point. And then they tell you, Hey, there's no contact for 30 days. And you're like, what the French toast are you talking about? 
This is my wife. I can't call her for 30 days, really. But I want her to get better, so I'll play by the rules. I don't really understand what's going on and why why this rule, but because it doesn't seem like anybody else in this place is married. Why can't you make an exception? But whatever. And then I remember getting in the car and driving off to make that three-hour drive home, and just before I got on the freeway, I felt really guilty because I felt really good. I felt like um, I left the problem with somebody else, and that's not to say, I mean, that's really how I felt at the time. I'm not going to try and dance around it, but I did feel like the monster was gone, and I could breathe, and I had room where I didn't have to worry about it. I didn't have to fix it. I've given it over to somebody else, and it felt freeing, but at the same time, I was missing my friend. So half of that was like, yay, but half of that was like, yeah, but I'm now alone. And, you know, I remember sometime after that where Dina was in treatment, and, you know, she'd send letters and how things are going, and her mom would check in with me and her brothers would check in with me. And, you know, our brothers were so nice and like, Hey, if you need to go to a therapist and get help for this, we'll pay for it. And, you know, I went a couple of times to the therapist, maybe one time to the therapist. I just didn't get what they were supposed to give me. So I was like, yeah, I even felt guilty about spending somebody else's money on making me feel better. So there was that part of it. Like, I'm not going to do this and be a drain on you because you think I need this. But I do remember walking along through the park and stuff and like thinking about, you know, the times I'd been with Nina and we'd had some good times, you know, walking these parks. And and I tried to remember the last time we had a, a good memory since we'd been married and couldn't think of one good memory in the nine months that we'd been married. And it really made me sad and you know I just kind of kind of felt like there's got to be more to this we've got to figure this out because I'm not going to keep going the way we're going and that was kind of my my moment of clarity this has to be the last time we do this because I don't want it I owe it to myself to have happy memories. Uh, you can't come up with a single happy memory in the nine months that you've been together. That's a problem. So, And and to Monica Dini's credit, when we were there, they went through all of her luggage. I remember like, why going through all her luggage? She didn't bring anything in. She just packed her stuff. And then inside one of the shoes, they pulled out gummy bears. And I remember looking at my wife going, why the hell did you pack gummy bears? In your shoe. Don't understand why the gummy bears exactly. But that's exactly what they were looking for because they knew how an addict's mind worked and they knew that they were going to bring stuff in that would help them cope. When they did that and they found, they found, did they find something else or just gummy bears? No, it was just the gummy bears. And they took them out and I don't know why I thought I could stick them in there now that I think back to it I mean I don't know what I was thinking the difference between Raider Institute and Monica Tini and why Monica Tini worked so well 
it wasn't easy. There were a lot of tears and not to be able to communicate with my best friend and my husband for 30 days and have no communication with my family was rough. Now, they could write me letters and stuff like that, but I really needed to kind of be in Dina world and just focus on Dina getting better. And I think they just didn't want the distraction from the outside to come inside. And that was why we had that 30 days of no communication. Did I want to stay there all the time? No. I was scared to death. That first night I was there, I remember one of the intake people came upstairs with me until I fell asleep. And I met a lot of great girls, and I'm hoping that this podcast, some of those girls will reach out to me again. I'm not going to mention their names, obviously, but they are completely like sisters, and I miss them tremendously. I just want to say, like, before we even entered into Monacatini, it was a struggle because I knew I had to go. My therapist had found me this place. I had called them, and they didn't have a room available yet, but found out within the next 24 hours that there was going to be a room available. I think it was that weekend. I think it was Thursday, so we're talking about a couple days, Saturday, Saturday or Sunday, till I go down there. And I remember having a conversation with one of my brothers and saying, you know, we found this place. The cost is a lot. I think it was $12,000 a month at the time, and that was just for having a bed. And he's like, where are we going to come up with this money, Dina? You know, what are you thinking about? And I'm thinking like, I mean, I knew, I don't know where the money was going to come from, but I knew that I didn't have much time left to sit around and think about it. So like we said, my brothers chipped in and would give their paychecks to my husband to help pay for each month. We dealt with a lot of uh, 12-step groups. Um, We had meetings continually throughout the day. The one great thing I think that made Monacatini the best was that you participated. Um, once I got to a point I could participate and get up and start moving around more, I could participate in making of the food. So the girls and I that lived there, somebody wasn't bringing us our food like Raider Institute did. We were participating in making a menu. We sat down, would have to get it approved by the doctors, and then certain girls would have to be cooking and what you'd all be cooking at some point during the week. But then you learned how, what a serving size was, what a cup of rice or three ounces of chicken. And, you know, you had the scale and the measuring cups and the, and you learned what a fat was and you learned you could feed yourself so that when you went home, you had participated in your own recovery. And that's what made it so wonderful. And then they had rules when you guys would sit down to eat, like there's yeah nobody could say anything for the first two minutes. No food talk. No, can't, couldn't have food talk. You're sitting at a table where everybody has an eating disorder. <laughs> so it's like, inevitably, the conversation is going to turn to food. And I remember the uh, intake counselor that would sit with us at the table and have meals. When that would happen, she'd always go make the same joke about, so how about those Dodgers? Which meant we were talking about food and we needed to change the subject. And it was just kind of, funny how it would always seem to steer that way it it would happen naturally but it was just we were always struggling against breaking that rule i think too like what i how did i make it through that each day when i was there not sure lots of prayer 
and a lot of structure. Structure is very good for me, even now in recovery. But I faked it till I could make it a lot of those days. Almost, I faked it till I make it through to get through breakfast without restricting, to get through lunch without restricting, to get through dinner without restricting. There was a lot of fake it till you make it. And I remember there was a day where I was like, I don't have to fake it anymore. And that was a turning point for me. And that's why I think it's so important to have long-term care, where short-term care kind of gets you to the point where you're like, oh, okay, you're awake, you're, you've gained a little bit of weight, clarity is there in your mind. But long-term care, you really need to be able to change those patterns in your recovery to make your recovery last. There were times where they would have to lock up the refrigerator. Um, there were there were times where people would take knives out and nobody could go to bed until the knives were found. And there were lots of games being played. And I do remember getting to the point where I was like, come on, everybody needs to just stop this right now. And I looked at, I listened to myself and I thought, oh my gosh, Dina, you're getting to the point where you don't want to play games anymore. You want to be there and get better. And I knew I was getting better, but at the same time of getting better, I was afraid of forgetting where I had been. And I, you'd think I'd want to forget that. And I think too, part of, um, part of what made Monacadini a different place is it didn't, where Raider was definitely a hospital. Monacadini was a big house with a kitchen, with an upstairs, downstairs, with bedrooms and bathrooms. They would have meetings down in the living room. They would include the family. Each patient kind of got a, a family day where their family would come down and they'd sit in a group. The family would be involved to participate like in a meal. because the, and, the, and those things are really helpful in understanding what your loved one is struggling with because they're hiding it from you and you don't necessarily know you know it's centered around food, but you don't really understand it. And it's when you have those group meetings, family meals that you have with 10, 12 other people that are struggling with eating disorders. You just see things that were invaluable to understanding. And you see other people, you know, sitting at a meal crying because they don't want to eat asparagus or whatever it was. You know, it sounds funny and it and it is kind of funny, but it's the manipulation and it's the struggle of what somebody with an eating disorder has. There's no booklet. There's no TV show. There's no uh, resource that can really help you understand it until you're there and you're seeing it. And another great point of Monica Tini was like, once you're getting close to your goal weight, you're not at your goal weight, but once you got to a point where you're doing much better, you got to go home for the weekend and before you got to go home, you had to do a whole meal plan and get it checked by the doctors. And But that was, like I've said before, relapse is a part of recovery. And it was so weird to hear from the doctors who would come and say, you know, if you're going to relapse, go ahead. But when you come back, let's talk about it and say what was going on, what was triggering you at the time that you relapsed. And it was refreshing because... When officially I went home, sometimes I had eyes all over me. My family was looking at like checking the trash can to make sure I didn't throw anything away. And it was a it was a lot of pressure to what do you call quote unquote perfect in your recovery. 
But to know that if I was going to mess up, it wasn't the end of the world, that I could come back after the weekend, discuss it with them, and have a plan and, and communicate what was going on. And they weren't going to be like, well, you just threw your whole recovery away. It wasn't like that. They looked at it and we talked about it and we figured out how can we fix it for the next time this doesn't happen. But anyway, that's just a little part of Monacatini and my stay there. It really was a, a special place of recovery. I never really understood why they were in the location that they were because it seemed like the the houses that they had, I think they had three houses, were all in the same community, was a very uh, high-rent district of where they were. It was kind of like, well, you know, it seems like we could do a lot more good if this place was cheaper because it's not like, I think of all the patients that were there, I think one, maybe two, had insurance that covered their stay. Everybody else was out of pocket. And when they say that was $12,000 a month, that's 12000 due the first of the month. And if you don't have it, then pack your bags and come get her because we don't have a room for her anymore. If she gets sick or gets hurt, then that's another doctor. That's not all inclusive. That's anything above and beyond is out of pocket too. So it was baffling to me to know why they structured it that way. But I'd have paid any amount to get my loved one better. They helped her on that road to get her better and was really the only place we ever found that really understood eating disorders in every respect, whether it was bulimia, whether it was overeating. It dealt with all of it and they understood, you know, what was behind it, how to deal with it. Representative of, hey, we have these girls make their own food. They would go out to dinner at restaurants and they would deal with whatever uncomfortableness you had going out to dinner. Yeah. Even those little things made a big difference and were really showing that they understood what the treatment was like. And they told me right up front, they're like, she's going to need at least a minimum of 90 days and then aftercare. And I'm just adding up in my head going, how in the world are we ever going to afford this? But we did. We got through it. You know, the recovery was there. The aftercare was there and all, all kinds of support even after we left. So cheers to Monica Tini. Yeah. So I kind of want to just wrap this podcast up by just saying, I know there's parents out there that, like my family, my parents were retired at the time and they didn't have the money. But I want to share a short story with you. When I left Monica Tini, we, I think our stay for total seven months was over $70,000. And I didn't know how I was going to pay back my brother's. But we have a business in California, a family business, and they, someone at that point, about 25 years prior to that, had owed my family a big chunk of money and they hadn't paid. And I think my family kind of just went, well, I guess we're not going to ever get paid for that. But when treatment was over and all was said and done, I don't know how it happened. It's a God thing. My brother got a check for $70,000. I guess you just have to believe and fake it till you make it. Even then, don't let the money hold you back because God will provide for you. If it's meant to be, it will happen. And that was a scary time for us. It all worked out. But I want to thank you for listening to this podcast. We hope you guys keep continuing coming back. God, 
Grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. Keep coming back. It works if you work it. So work it. You are worth it. Bye, guys. Thank you for joining us. If you found this podcast useful or we have given you hope and you want to reach out and contribute, feel free to do so at eatthatfat at gmail.com. That's eatthatfat at gmail.com. Our pledge to you is that every penny that we get in contributions goes to production costs and keeping the lights on. We will not pay ourselves, but anything above and beyond production costs will go to benefit organizations that specialize in eating disorders. Please reach out to us if you need resources or you just need to talk. You are not alone and there are people who care. Keep coming back. It works if you work it, so work it. You are worth it.